What a great morning already, right? Such great song selection. Um, I, there is a couple of things I wanted to mention announcement-wise real quick. I know we had a lot at the beginning, but um, Chanel asked me to make note that the Sojourners Ministry, the ministry for those 55 and older, so far away, like 55, like who's, who's there, right? I'm not, right? right? Exactly. I'm knocking on that door. 55, I know it seems young, but the Sojourners Ministry is for 55 and older, and uh, we can uh, get together, and it's men and women. She wanted to make sure everybody knew that it was for the guys and the ladies, right? And so I know those of us who are in our 50s, maybe that doesn't feel like a, a good fit for us, right? But there's a lot of ways we can use that to encourage the people who are part of that ministry. I know with my dad being here and in uh, assisted living, there's a lot of need, and, and that leads kind of to the second announcement, which is the hymn sing tonight at Riverside at 6 o'clock. And a great chance also to encourage those who are kind of shut in and unable to get out and go to church. And so I hope you'll make a note of those things and be a part of those. The Sojourners Ministry, I think, meets once a month for lunch at one place. And so just watch for that announcement as you read your Monday emails. Um, we're going to be back in John, and we're in chapter 12, John chapter 12. And we've been in John for a while, and you cannot appreciate the life of Jesus Christ until you walk with him day by day, step by step through the Gospel of John. It's just an incredible book, and I know it feels like a long time ago that we started out in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That seems like a long time ago, and we've seen a lot of things happen over these months. And nothing more really than the last few weeks where Jesus has just come right out and said, I'm, I and the Father are one. And the religious leaders of the day, of course, that's blasphemy. That's worthy of death. And so they are after him to kill him. He's just risen. Uh, Lazarus has risen from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And that's got to be, as Roy talked about last week, the, the religious leaders are gathering together. They're conspiring now, now for the death of Jesus Christ. And so it's amazing, the story, and the fact that we have four Gospels to see four different angles and accounts on the life of Jesus is amazing. So we're going to pray today uh, to begin, and then we're going to look at John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word, and as we've mentioned and talked about in, in song, that your word is life and truth. And God, we meet here today, we gather here today as a community because we desire to build our lives upon you and your word, and you are the word, and you are the way, and you're the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father, God, no one comes to you except through Jesus Christ, and today we celebrate that, we remember that, and we uh, encourage one another for that. God, and I pray as we uh, walk out of here uh, later today, God, that we won't just disconnect from the reality that you are uh, everything, you are everything, and help us to remember that and be with you in the week and, and look into your word and pray to you and seek you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. I have mentioned maybe before that my family loves thrift shopping, all right? Not me so much. I go, I, I go in, I look around, but not as much. But they love it. They all love to spend time in thrift stores. And, and I think the thing my mind goes through a lot, and maybe, maybe you guys or some of you guys are like me, that you're in these places and you're like, okay, is there this hidden treasure that exists here somewhere? All right, like a Mickey Mantle rookie card, you know, that you're going to find, you're going to stumble on, and it's going to be worth uh, thousands and thousands of dollars. And so I, I always had that mindset. And there's actually people who have made these incredible finds in a thrift store. In fact, one guy literally found, and this is obviously not it, but found a 
certified, like a, a, a sanctioned copy, a commissioned copy of the Declaration of Independence in a thrift store in Nashville. And this was, uh, it was uh, authorized by John Quincy Adams in 1823. And when this guy found this treasure, he knew there was something special about it. And he bought it for $2.50, and it was worth $500,000, all right? So that's the kind of finds I'm looking for. But imagine if you went into a thrift store and you found that kind of deal, that kind of amazing hidden treasure, and the place was cash only. You just had your card, and you had no cash on you, and it was 3 bucks, and you knew it was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you had no money. What would you do? Because you know, if you said, hold this for me, I'll be back, and they figured something out, there's a chance of losing it. If you left to get cash from the ATM and came back, you knew that somebody might buy it. And so what would you do? I don't know about you, but I would be doing whatever I could to get that money. I would be offering to sell my shoes on my feet, the jacket that I'm wearing. I would be saying, buy whatever you know, I have here. Take my watch. Take whatever, because I want this money, because what I'm buying here is worth so much more. And I realize that. And when it comes to Mary in the Bible today, in the scripture today in John, she realizes the worth of Jesus. And she responds accordingly with her everything. She makes a huge sacrifice. Why? Because it's worth it. It's it's an easy trade-off. Because what I've found is so valuable that I'm willing to liquidate those assets that I have because they're meaningless compared to the great value of Jesus Christ. And as Mitch so well noted, we forget that during the week. We forget the value and worth of Jesus. We can come and we can hear the word, we can sing, we can be excited, but we walk out and we forget to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so today is a reminder that Jesus is worth it. He really is. He's worth it. And Mary recognizes that, and we need to recognize that as well. So John chapter 12, John starts off by giving us the fact that this is six days before the Passover. Why does that matter? What is the Passover? Real real quick lesson. The Passover was the Jewish festival that celebrated the exodus out of Egypt, where the Israelites got their freedom from the Egyptians. And so God sent Moses to the Egyptian king and commanded him, and God gave him the message, let my people go. Pharaoh refused. God brought 10 plagues on the land of Egypt, and the 10th plague was the worst of them all, the death of the firstborn in all of the land. But the night of the first Passover was the night of the 10th plague, and God told the Israelites, here's what I want you to do. To be protected, you need to sacrifice a spotless lamb, one that has no blemishes, and then you paint on the door, on the sides of your door, on the top of the door, you paint the blood on the door frame. And so when the Lord passed over that night, he would pass over those households that showed the blood, and the Israelites who would obey God's command, their firstborn would be saved. And this is a beautiful foreshadowing of Jesus and his substitutionary atonement, his death on our behalf. In fact, Paul references this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, where he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Christ is the reason why God passes over us. Jesus, it's about Jesus. And so he sets the tone, he says, six days before the Passover, they're celebrating the Passover 
in this foreshadowing of Jesus, who's actually there with them, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, if you've followed with us the last few weeks, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, no surprise, right? And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So most certainly, as the text notes here, this is a celebration of Lazarus, all right? Now, this is, is interesting. It's fun to think about the fact that here they're having a party for a guy who was, he was dead, now he's alive. Imagine the invitations that went out for Lazarus at this point, right? I just had to, to, to mentally soak that in for a second, that they're celebrating a guy who was dead. They, they had a funeral. They buried him. They, they, they thought he was gone. And then Jesus comes. He's back to life. Let's throw a party. Let's celebrate Lazarus. He was dead. Now he's alive. What a cool, cool image. And what a, also a foreshadowing even for us, dead but alive. So, so here's Lazarus. Here's this party that's happening. And it's also, John wants to know it's six days before the Passover, also because he wants to give us a little time marker here. Believe it or not, we're moving to the last week prior to Jesus's crucifixion. We're coming into the last week. Now, I know if you're looking at your Bibles and you're looking at John, we're in 12. You know there's a lot more to go. John spends a third or more of his book of his gospel talking, or actually close to a half, talking about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And also this time marker helps us because we know that this is the third Passover mentioned in the book of John. And this is why we know that Jesus' ministry probably lasted about three years. So imagine this. Get the picture. We know when we meet with Jesus, he changes us. As we talked about a few weeks ago, that we see the glory of Jesus and it changes us. Well, the disciples spent three years of their life being discipled by Jesus Christ himself, the greatest discipler who ever lived. The fact that Jesus poured into these guys for three years is amazing. And so here Jesus and his disciples, they come and they come to this party, they gather together, but yet we're going to see, in spite of the fact that Jesus' disciples spent three years with him, that there's a problem within the midst of the disciples, and we're going to start to see this problem coming out in this text. But first, let's read verse 3. So Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. What a beautiful expression of love and worship. The song we just sang about the alabaster box and pouring out. That's the picture we have here is that she gives this incredible act of worship, this extravagant act of worship for Jesus. We're going to come back to Mary in a minute. But what I'm going to look is at one of the disciples who had three years to be discipled by Jesus and how he responds to this situation. And John intends, verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, he sets up a clear contrast between Mary and with Judas. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, and then John gives us a little insight here, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So as we're nearing the end of Jesus' earthly ministry here, we have this trusted disciple, Judas, 
who's going to point out Mary and her problem with her extravagant worship. And obviously, as we know, most of us know, this is disciple, as John pointed out, who's going to betray him. Jesus is clearly not surprised. If you've tracked with us through the book of John, back in chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus told the disciples, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So imagine the suspicion within the twelve disciples when Jesus, back in chapter 6, when he makes note to this, when he points out the fact, when he drops this bomb, hey, one of you, twelve, is a devil. You're being controlled by the devil. But here's the thing that's interesting. Apparently, the other disciples don't suspect Judas at all. Because their reaction when Judas gets up and leaves the Last Supper, which was the Passover celebration, when he gets up and leaves the, the Last Supper, they're not surprised. John 13, if you want to turn there, or it's going to be on the screen, verse 26, Jesus answered, it is he, he's given the insight at the Last Supper, who was going to betray him. It's he who I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do it quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said that to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So they had no suspicion of the fact that Judas was the one who was going to betray him. And Judas was a thief all along as he's hanging with these 12 plus Jesus, these 13 guys who are doing life together. And Satan was using Judas as a pawn in his bigger scheme to destroy Jesus. And Judas had fooled everyone. He'd fooled everyone. What a reality check that Judas is fooling people and fooling those who are very, very close to him. In fact, I think it really brings us down to like flesh and blood, the fact that John points out several times that Judas was the son of Simon Iscariot. Like he puts flesh and blood on Judas. Like this is, this is a real guy here, right? This is a guy who isn't just some figure that we're reading about that, you know, he was this evil you know, dude that just was so out there that everybody just recognized how evil and rotten and nasty he was. No, this is a guy that fooled everyone into believing that he was on board with Jesus in his mission, in his discipleship. All right, so he fooled all the others. And the, this is a great reminder, a great reminder, as we gather for church week in and week after. All right, and, and the truth is, you're here, that's a really good sign, but we know that some of you are here because you were drug here, right? You, like, you pretty much were forced. Your spouse goes to church. I gotta go. You know, it's what I, I'd rather sleep, but I've, I've got to hold up expectations. I've got to be there. And so you're here, you're going through the motions, and you're doing the church thing, but you're really, your heart is not attuned to Jesus. And you're really good at walking the walk and talking the talk, but in reality, we know that Satan works among churches and he's trying to destroy people's lives. And he has those who are his pawns, even in a church community, because he wants nothing more than to bring shame upon the kingdom of God and the name of God. And that's, re that's reality, all right? I, I know that it's easy to sit here, removed from Jesus, 
looking at the word, your mind's drifting on other things, you're thinking about other things, and it's hard to really imagine that, that Satan is really honestly trying to destroy this body of believers. He's trying to bring shame upon the church, meaning the universal church. And we know by looking out there, we see a lot of that happening through various social issues and agendas that are going on, but it's happening right here as well, just in little subtle things like gossip, dissension, anger, bitterness. These things work within a church body, and these are the things that Satan plants in to destroy the kingdom of God. And Satan was working in Judas, and he continues to work to this day. And Satan can plant thoughts in our head. He can. He can plant thoughts in our head. And I've seen throughout Scripture and throughout life that Satan loves to attack those who are in leadership. He loves to, to attack those who are set up as a pastor, elder, deacon, because he knows that if he destroys that family and those lives, that there's going to be a ripple effect throughout the congregation. And so Satan's operating behind fallen human beings. Chip sent me a message last night, the same message that he sent to some of you maybe, about this being Reformation Sunday and tomorrow being uh, Reformation Day, the 31st, 505 years since Luther really just made a difference and changed everything by really standing up. And what we're going to talk about in a few minutes, standing up and, and just going out and just taking on criticism and not more than criticism, persecution for the cause of Christ. And I had this quote from Luther earlier in the week, even before I realized that this Sunday was coming around. And here's what Luther said. He said, the devil throws hideous thoughts into the soul, hatred of God, blasphemy, and despair. And this is, look, this is not just for those unbelievers. He says, when I awake at night, the devil tarries not to seek me out. He disputes with me and makes me give birth to all kinds of strange thoughts. I think that often the devil solely to torment and to vex me, wakes me up while I'm actually sleeping peacefully. My nighttime combats are much harder for me than in the day. The devil understands how to produce arguments that exasperate me. Sometimes he has produced such as to make me doubt whether or not there is a God. Martin Luther said that. If Martin Luther can say that, and we know that Satan is planning these things in his mind, Satan does that to us as well. Now, at Grace, we really try to strike a, a, a good balance because we know some people go crazy on the devil and spiritual warfare, and they want to find the devil in everything. Well, the devil is in everything, but there's also, Scripture points out, our enemies are the world and the flesh, all right? And they work in tandem with one another in order to destroy Christians' lives and to bring down and bring shame upon the name of Christ. And, and look, the, the flesh itself is such a formidable foe. I mean, we know we're battling against selfishness and our own desires to do what we want and leave God out of our lives all the time. And, and so the flesh is a very powerful enemy. And then we have the world, and everything in the world is telling us, conform, be like the world, all right? Be like us. And God says, here's my word to help you where you won't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we wake up every day and we're like, I got this. I know the word. I'll just go through my day. And we, throughout our day, in subtle ways, we conform to the thinking of the word, world because we don't have the word in our minds. And so the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we feed the, this all the time by taking in the world, more and more of the world, more and more of the stuff to please our flesh. I love this quote by Paul Tripp. He says, don't feed the beast 
And then act surprised when you get bitten. Don't feed the beast and act surprised when you get bitten. Isn't that a great reminder for our families, for our homes, for our lives? If all we want to do is just feed the flesh, take in the world. Even you say, oh, it's not that bad. All right, I can handle that. But if that's what we're taking in all the time, and that's our life, and then I'll give Jesus a little bit here or there. What's going to happen to our mind, just practically? What happens to our mind? We conform to the world. And so Satan is working. He's working on Judas, using him as a pawn. He's trying to destroy your life and your family. He's trying. He's trying. He's throwing everything at you in order for that to happen. So let's go back and look at Mary again and the contrast that John makes with Judas. So Mary, she's at this dinner party. Martha's serving. Lazarus there reclining. It's in his honor. And she takes a pound of this expensive ointment, verse 3, made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Many of you know, we've walked with Mary and Martha through a few weeks in chapter 11. Many of you know the story from Luke chapter 10 where Martha was busy serving. Mary was, where was she again? At the feet of Jesus. She liked to be at the feet of of Jesus. We almost feel like we know Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so there's Mary again at the feet of Jesus. Back in Luke, when Mary's at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus, Martha's busy serving. She's busy doing her stuff. She comes to Jesus. She's irritated with her sister. I'm doing all the work, Jesus. All she's doing is sitting there, taking it in. What, what, you know, help, make her help me. Make her help me. Now, interestingly enough, and a side note, which will tie in in a minute, that Jesus doesn't actually condemn Martha for her serving, but he points out the problem is with her attitude. It's with her attitude. And so we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But Mary, here again, she's at center stage at the feet of Jesus rather than helping Martha serve this meal again. And she performs this extravagant gesture of anointing Jesus' feet with this expensive oil. And, And John wants to make sure that we know that this is costly. He makes sure he uses the word expensive ointment to note just how much this cost Mary and her family. Her offering was approximately a year's wages by ordinary labor standards. So do the math in your head for today's kind of equivalent to that. This was a costly sacrifice. And not only was it costly, but, I mean, she really goes crazy with it. I mean, a pound would have been about 11 or 12 ounces of oil. And so it's this ridiculously large amount of perfume that she uses. And it's a large amount to be applied to one person. No wonder John points out that this just covers the aroma, covers the house. And so the, the quality and the quantity she used of this oil was impressive. And so on top of that, she's at Jesus' feet again. Feet, all right? I don't know about you, but feet can be pretty nasty. Back in the first century, people walking with sandals, didn't have paved roads, dusty roads, nasty. The lowest of the lowest servants were the ones that were in charge of washing feet. But here's Mary. She's at Jesus' feet She's giving her devotion to Jesus. And not only that, the the scripture says that she uses her hair to wipe his feet. Now, in that day, this was somewhat scandalous. It really was. A woman would not have taken down her hair in public. 
that you know, this wasn't a proper thing for a Jewish woman to do. So you see this really intense personal devotion to Jesus, but absolutely no hint whatsoever of immorality in this text. But what we do is see this generosity, this humility, which rarely, right, go hand in hand, do they? Generosity, humility. Usually people are generous like, put my name on the building, right? Make me known. Like, I want to be the prominent person because I'm giving all this. Make sure I'm known. That doesn't go hand in hand. A lot of times it's saying, I'm humble and I'm generous. And so Mary gave this extravagant worship directing praise and glory to Jesus. But the contrast with Judas, he's this cold-hearted, faithless fake, and he cloaks his words in this self-righteous piety. And so you have this authentic worshiper, Mary. Just really picture it, this authentic worshiper, and you have this hypocrite, this thief, who's faking everybody out, and he's trying to be all righteous in front of the group. He calls Mary out right in front of everybody, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Like, I'm so noble, right? Jesus, what a waste. This is, this is wasteful. Give it to the poor. And his objection to Mary's expression of worship is based on this money that could feed the poor. But the text tells us in verse 6, he didn't care for the poor. All he cared about it was himself, right? All he cared about was getting more money for him to spend and steal on the side. So he's looking at Mary's offering and saying, that's money I could have used for myself. And so he points out caring for the poor. Now, of course, we're commanded to care for the, the poor and those in need, all right? This is not, Jesus' reaction just a minute is not saying that caring for the poor is, is not a legitimate concern. It, it truly is. But we need to be really careful because religion tries as hard as they can, Satan working behind the scenes again, to steer religion away from Jesus Christ onto a lot of other things. And oftentimes they're really good things like taking care of the poor, social type things that we're giving and we're serving. And, and, and some people are, are just wired to really love to serve. And there's nothing wrong with being a doer. Again, Martha was a doer. Jesus didn't criticize her for doing. He criticized her for her attitude because she failed to see that her her doing needed to come from a place of worship of Jesus. That was paramount. That was much more important. And so when we worship Jesus properly, when we see Jesus properly, then our works come from a pure heart, not just, I want to earn your favor, God. I'm trying to make it into your kingdom, God, and I want to do these things. It, it, our default can be earning, earning, earning. And Jesus says, out of a heart that loves me, and out of the generosity and mercy and grace that I've shown you, out of that comes this heart to serve. And so Mary, Martha had it mixed up, and her attitude and heart, not her actions, were what was the problem. I read a great quote by John MacArthur on this I want to share with you. He said, It is a danger, even for those of us who love Christ, that we not become so concerned with doing things for him that we begin to neglect hearing him and remembering what he has done for us, or the gospel. Never allow your service for Christ to crowd out your worship of him. The moment our works become more important to us than our worship, we have turned true spiritual priorities on their heads. We need to cultivate more of Mary's worshipful, listening spirit and less of Martha's scrambling commotion. And so we need 
to understand that extravagant worship focused on Jesus is what really matters because out of it flows the proper motivations for our service. So Jesus responds pretty firmly to Judas in verse 7. He says, leave her alone. Just leave her alone, Judas. And Judas just serves as a a huge warning for us. He looked the part of the disciple again, but he was self-centered in his motivation. His only concern was what he could get from Jesus. And he looked moral, but money was what motivated him. And so he confronts Mary, and he does this in a way that appears morally superior, prudent, financially responsible, right? We only got so much money to go around, Jesus. Guys, this this is not wise. It's not practical. We need this money for other endeavors. And Jesus says, look, Judas, leave her alone. Mary is shameless in her worship of Jesus. And honestly, I mean, this is hard. Culturally, it's hard because Jesus is not right here, and we're not taking our ointment and pouring upon him. And so to find a modern-day equivalence for these things can be tough. Those who are doing sermon follow-up, this is really, really a rich conversation to have. But as Mary gave and poured out her worship to Jesus, it is something that we really need to think about. What does our worship look like, and what does it cost us? Come back to that in a minute. Verse, Verse 7 again, Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. You know, last week, you remember when Cephas unknowingly prophesied about Jesus and his atoning death? Well, what we have here is very similar. Mary doesn't realize that Jesus is about to be crucified and and buried. She doesn't understand that her act of love is is legitimately a, a prophetic statement about what's to come in the next week. Jesus is about to be buried and buried so quickly that he may not have time for proper anointing, and so he had better have it right away, and Mary's giving that to him. And so when Jesus says, for the poor, verse 8, you always have, will always have with you, but you do not always have me, he's saying keep, re, keep what's remaining, the remaining of this oil that you have, keep it for my burial because that's more important than selling it because this is imminent. It's coming up very, very soon. And so whatever you have left of this ointment, don't pour it out, don't waste it, don't give it to the poor. It's for me. It's for me. And so, in this picture, this scene we have, literally, like, think about where do you identify more? Are you becoming in your heart, in your attitudes, in your life, more like Mary? Think about that, honestly. Discuss that with yourself in your mind. Are you becoming more like Mary, or are you becoming more like Judas? All right, Judas is this awful figure, and it's easy to disconnect from him, and I I can't connect with Judas. I would never betray Jesus. But the attitudes the stinginess, the greed that that, that he showed, the hypocrisy that he showed. Whereas Mary, she just comes and she just, Jesus, you're my everything. You're you're everything, Jesus. And I just want to lay it out there before you. So are you becoming more like Mary or Judas? Because our heart's condition is revealed either by our giving or by our greed. Greed. Are you a giving person? Do you hold loosely to the things that God gave you? Or are you always tight? Like, oh my goodness, we got to make sure, you know, we always have enough. 
all right? And, and, it, and it cloaks maybe this selfishness and this fear and this lack of trust in God. And it can come from a good place. And, and obviously, we're not advocating just reckless spending or reckless, careless attitudes of using God's resources. Not what we're talking about here. But the focus is Mary, that she gave extravagantly. And she gave of her everything, her all. She, she poured it out, not necessarily all financially, but definitely her reputation, her putting herself on that spot. You ever been there and done that? Like, like had to be the one who stood out in the crowd when Jesus needed to be stand for. You're the one when the friends were all doing certain things and you said, hold on guys, that's not what you should do. And they all look at you like, what? Come on, what's wrong with you? Or the, the image I have back when I was a youth pastor and every year we do the sea at the pole. And it's at school where you have that one kid, the only kid in the entire school who shows up at the pole to pray and to read his Bible. And the other kids are walking in, mocking, ridicule, making fun of him. Extravagant worship says, I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to put my fears aside. I'm willing to put my, even my, my reputation aside because I love Jesus more because he, he's worth it. He's worth it. And I'm going to liquidate. I'm going to, I'm going to sell. I'm going to get rid of the stuff that's distracting me so I can, in my world, worship Jesus in a way that's extravagant, in a way that means something and costs me something. And look, I, I really sit down and I thought, okay, how can we think like practically? For me, practically, what, what could this look like? This extravagant worship. And we know that worship is way more than singing. But it, it kind of does sadden my heart that so many times guys, men, were so hesitant to sing. We're so hesitant just to express ourselves in singing worship. I don't know if it's like, I don't have a great voice. I don't want people to hear around me. Sorry, Michelle sitting in front of me. Michelle, my wife beside me, my dad. I sing super loud, and it's probably off key most of the time, okay? But I'm singing because I look at Jesus, and it just does something to my heart. And you can make all the excuses up in the world that why you don't sing, but the bottom line is the, the Psalms and the Scripture tell us again and again to sing. And, and there is this sort of just letting yourself go and putting yourself out there when you sing. Some other things, you know, giving, giving of your time, giving of your financial resources. There's times even when, when I look at my budget, my finances, and say, that goes every month to the church, I could have a pretty nice car, right, with that, right? I could really drive something nice. It's a sacrifice. It is. Those of you who have been giving for years and years and years, it's probably better you don't think about how much that's been, but it's a, a huge amount of money. And Satan can put in your mind, wow. That could have really gone a long way in your 401k. Or you could have been doing a lot better vacations. Satan does that to us. He puts those thoughts in our mind. Another way we can show this extravagant worship, fasting. Fasting, giving up a food or something that's precious to us for a time. And we used to highlight that the first of every month. We're going to get back into that in November. My son Colin, who is doing an internship with a campus ministry in Athens, they're doing a two-day no-eating fast Monday and Tuesday of next week, or this week. That's a pretty big commitment for a college student, right, who, who loves to eat, a boy who loves to eat, two days. What about this one? The things that we celebrate in our home, that can be an act of extravagant worship. What gets celebrated, honestly, what gets celebrated in your home? 
oh, son, man, good job, high five. You scored three goals in that soccer game. Man, 12 points, awesome. Or, wow, look at these grades. You're going to get into the best college. Wow, it's going to be great, man. You're going to have no trouble early enrollment in Georgia. And we celebrate these things. And there's nothing wrong at all with celebrating those things. Those are good things. But should Jesus not get celebrated even better and bigger? That's extravagant worship. And I'll be the first to admit, sometimes it's just hard. Like Satan's in your ear. He's like, don't say that. That sounds kind of silly. All right? Don't, don't highlight their following of Jesus because that sounds sort of like sissy and not as manly. So Satan, I don't know, ladies, what, he, what he's putting in your ear. Those are the kind of things he puts in my ear. What are you celebrating? What you celebrate is what you worship. And so if you want to worship extravagantly like Mary, celebrate the things that matter. And then back to the Paul Tripp quote, like, don't feed the beast. It's an act of worship to say no to certain forms of entertainment and certain things. We're just not going to watch that as a family because, you know what, it's just not good. It doesn't bring good into our homes. And that's a hard one because I grew up in homes or in churches that were very legalistic. And they said, don't watch this. Don't do this. And it had all these rules. And it was all about the rules. This is not about the rules. It's about worship. It's about saying, would it create a more worshipful home experience if we chose not to do that or watch that? So extravagant worship. Let's, let's put some meat on these bones here. Let's think, how can we apply this so we don't walk out and be like, oh, that was, that was a good word from John. No, it, it's a good word when you apply it and take the Holy Spirit's conviction and you put it into practice. And you live the word and you're doers of the word, not just hearers. Extravagant worship. Jesus, it, it all begins and ends with the fact that Jesus is worth it. Wow, look what I found. Look what I, I found here. I'm selling everything. I'm liquidating. You can have my shoes. You can have my jacket because it's worth it because what I get in return is so much better than what I'm giving up. That's what you need to pray and ask Jesus to give you that love and, and desire for him because that's where it begins and that's where it flows from. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for just how that you've given us all we need for life and faith and godliness. And God, uh, we admit that Satan puts in our ears so many times that this is not worth it. He whispers to us, that we, do you really believe this? And the word brings us back to the reality of what really matters, which is you spoke the universe into, into being, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again, proving he was who he said he was. And God, may we build our lives upon that word, that truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.